G'day, I'm Tom Ballard and this is What's the Story, the podcast where we discuss the latest Editor's Extra, a bonus bestseller from Audible. It's like a book club for your ears. This month we have been delving into the remarkable story of Sandra Pankhurst in Sarah Krasnerstein's The Trauma Cleaner. Husband, father, drag queen, sex worker, wife, cleaner. Sandra has been a lot of things. A lifetime of abuse left her with emotional scars, but she founded her trauma cleaning business to help people whose emotional scars are written on their houses. But the opposite of trauma is not the absence of trauma. The opposite of trauma is order, proportion. It is everything in its place. In The Trauma Cleaner, Sandra enters properties and lives at the same time. From the forgotten flat of a drug addict to the infested home of a hoarder, Sandra's story is slowly unravelled, revealing the details of this woman's extraordinary life. A lot of people know some of the story, but they do not know all of the story. Gosh, I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I did. This has been my favourite title that we've listened to thus far on What's the Story. I thought it was a compelling listen. I was fascinated by this this biography, this person's story. Incredible writing, extraordinary writing, and I was just regularly shocked and moved by what I was hearing. So I hope you liked it as much as I did. I think we have a lot to talk about when it comes to the trauma cleaner, and I'm lucky to be doing that with my two fantastic guests. The first is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Macquarie University, as well as the Deputy Director of the Centre for Emotional Health, Melissa Norberg. Welcome, Melissa. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. How did you go about listening to the trauma cleaner? What was the experience like for you? I listened to it on the way to work, which was not a great idea because when I got to chapter two, I arrived in tears oh. and I was pretty angry at really? the same time. Yeah. Gosh, it was an intense experience. Also joining us is the comedian, writer and performer Jordan Ruskopoulos. Hello, Jordan. Hi, Tom Ballard. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, how was the experience of listening to The Trauma Cleaner for you? Yeah, I actually listened to it on a drive to Bathurst and back right. uh, on my way to an engagement party for two trans women. Wow. Um, yeah, so it was kind of, I had quite a, a lovely experience in between, you know, uh, bookended by a book that was was quite difficult to deal with. and you know, um, But it was kind of nice to be able to to frame it with, you know, trans life today. Yeah. Look, it, it was it's an intense experience listening to this to this story, I reckon. Um, the descriptions of the kind of work that Sandra Pankhurst does, they're very confronting, and we'll, we'll come to that a bit later in the episode. Obviously, a huge turning point in Sandra's life is that moment when, while she's living as Peter, an apparently cisgendered gay man, she encounters the possibility, the very idea of being a transgender woman. But then it dawns on him that some of the queens are actually living their lives as females in real bodies that they weren't born with. Soon after this, he overhears someone at a bar one night talking about taking female hormones and going through the change. It feels like a light switching on. It feels like a light switching on. Was that a relatable moment for you, Jordan? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, <laughs> for those out in audio land who, who don't know, I am transgender. Um, and my light switching on was a little different because, you know, that happened, um, you know, six or seven years ago now. And, you know, feelings that I had throughout my life. Um, but for me, you know, I grew up in a world where I knew trans people existed, but I didn't know a trans narrative that was like mine. You know, I didn't have an overly feminine childhood. Most of my hobbies are still pretty mask. Um, and I, I used 
those, you know, that part of my nature to tell myself I wasn't transgender. Mm. And so it wasn't for me, my light switched on when I read an academic paper sort of um, outlining different archetypes of trans narratives. And they said, you know, many um, kind of reflect Sandra's and, you know, having a a feminine childhood and identifying as as a gay man before transitioning, but then sort of described... um, People like me, who are who are queer women, who are attra- still attracted to women, mm. um, who have quite hyper masculine um, childhoods and upbringings, because they're uh, driven by shame to hide their feminine identity. And I, similarly, you know, Sandra didn't know either. You know, narrative existed, but I'd only known hers. You know that because that was popularized. And then reading a paper. Um, that described a different way to be trans was a, was a was a light switch for me. As you're listening to the trauma cleaner, are you constantly putting yourself in Sandra's shoes of that time period and trying to imagine what that would be like or how you would possibly deal, yeah. knowing everything that you know as being a trans woman today? Yeah, look, there's um, times throughout that where I'm like, oh my god, um, we have come so far, mm. you know. But there are times where I'm like, oh my god, this hasn't changed either. You know, there are there are moments where, um, you know, being excluded from spaces or being told that you're not female enough to be here or there. And um, so both, you know, I'm thankful for all the progress that has been made, you know, in the, in the last 20, you know, plus years. Um, but it also reminds me of things that are still not great. Mm. I mean, this is a story of a transgender woman being told by a cisgendered woman, I, I think, Certainly for my reading, Sarah Crescent's scene is an extraordinarily sympathetic and sensitive writer mm. who is really dedicated to trying to understand this person and tell her story as fully as she can. But generally speaking, how do you think the trauma cleaner goes at navigating and negotiating a trans narrative? Yeah, look, there's one um, glaring thing for me, which is the use of male pronouns when talking about Sandra's early life. And, you know, she acknowledges that the name Peter was not um, Sandra's dead name, mm. you know, and, and that Sandra keeps that to herself. Mm. Um, and generally, the, the trans community advocates for people to use, uh, when talking about people in the past, to, to be consistent with their pronouns. So, you know, Sandra has always been she, has had a consistent gender identity uh, throughout her whole life, um, but was only able to come to terms with it after a certain point. Um and, you know, the reason for that is that we try to um, help people understand that trans people don't switch genders or change their genders. Gender is a consistent thing throughout life. Um, but then again, you know, I understand stylistically and artistically it, it makes for a good um, story and, you know, we can navigate the shift in character over time. Um, but I think it's important to point out that when dealing with real people um, that you, you should be consistent with someone's pronouns. Melissa, how did you go with this conception of Sandra Pankhurst as quite a conservative woman, really, someone who was desperate to be normal, someone who was a liberal voter, uh, someone who actively made the choice to cut off ties to the LGBTQ community when she was dedicated to living as a um, as a woman, as, as what she defined to be a normal woman? What, what did you make of that element of Sandra Pankhurst? Well, I just thought it highlights that everybody's different. There's just not one standard trans person, one st- standard... LGBT, straight person, we're all different. Um, At the same time, I thought it was a bit sad that she cut off all those people because she lost a a potential support network. Yeah. Jordan, what did you make of that? Yeah, look, I think there's... um Within the trans community, older trans people were lived in a society that encouraged them to hide their transness. Um, you were only offered 
treatment if um, the doctors thought that you could pass, you know, if that if you could blend into society and no one knew you were trans. Um, and, you know, shame, shame plays a big role in that. And so there are, um, the result is that there isn't much of an old guard within the trans community today. Many people of Sandra's generation who transitioned did the same thing, that they felt they needed to, in order to feel genuine about their gender, they needed to eliminate their transness from their life. And I think that is um, disappearing a bit with the younger generation. There are uh, people like myself who are proudly trans, who um, are more than happy to um, be visibly trans and to talk about it. And I think that is an important thing for community because young people need um, an old guard. They need people to hold their hands um, and and tell them everything's going to be okay. And, you know, Help, help light the way and make it easier for younger people. Sandra undeniably faces some pretty horrific transphobia, some sexual violence, some awful incidences throughout her life as we hear about in the trauma cleaner. But I must say, I was really struck also by moments of tenderness, moments when she's accepted for who she is and she's shown love by people in her lives. There's that moment when George has asked her to marry her and she comes out to him and gives him the truth and this is how he reacts. Well... He says, clearing his throat and starting the car. I met Sandra, and I fell in love with Sandra, and that's all right by me. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like that's in the eighties, right? It's like, you know, that's pretty. This seems like a pretty open-minded attitude from the, from this guy who clearly just fallen in love with a person. What did you make of that? It Lisa, just was a really beautiful moment mm. that I was really happy for Sandra. Yeah. Jordan? Yeah, I, I found coming up myself that um, the older people in your life and the younger people in your life were the most chill about it. Like, the most chill person in my life was my grandma, who's in her 80s and a Catholic, and her response was, hmm, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, I think it can happen. People Like, people with fewer hang-ups and people who've been through life and um, are just looking to enjoy themselves and the company of others, realise oh, it's not a big deal. People are people. Yeah. And so divorced from all the culture war nonsense around exactly. those kind of issues. Here's a question for you. Do we like Sadra Pankhurst? Do we, how do we feel about judging her? Is that even like a good question to ask? Because I'll tell you who doesn't seem to be sure about that question one way or the other is Sandra Pankhurst. I do not want a funeral. I just want to be here one day and gone the next. Enjoy me while I'm here, but not when I'm gone. Really, to me, it's false bullshit when we all say, oh, such a lovely person. Oh, crap. I was a bitch at times. I was this, I was that. Sometimes I was nice. Get over it. Everyone who dies is perfect. Get over it. Get over it. What do you think, Melissa? Did you find yourself coming to a certain place, like making some kind of judgment on whether Sandra Pankhurst was was a good person or not? I had two thoughts. Um... So my first one, it's it's really great. She doesn't seem to have any death anxiety, and that prevents a lot of us from doing things in our life. Um, And then my second thought was her whole life history explains this attitude. So for 17 years, she was taught she was replaceable. So when she was adopted and then her parents ended up having two additional boys, Mm. they said, you were a mistake. We didn't need you. Mm. And then they put her in the shed. And that's taught her. Life goes on without you. Wow. And so that speaks to her inability to maintain friendships over a long period of time. Yeah. Perhaps her casual attitude to whether or not she keeps in touch with her children, that, yeah. co- that kind of thing. Our early life experiences are so important in shaping who we are for the rest of our life. 
Jordan? Yeah, look, I like I understand, but I'm I'm furious at her. <laughs> like especially at the end where you know she reconnects with her kids a bit and but decides not to put them in the wheel, you know, and and I was just like. Did you learn nothing from how you were treated? <laughs> you were treated so poorly and you just don't want to just recognise that there's something between you and your children, you know, that, that you didn't have with your parents. Why don't you want to be something better and make something better? And I, and I guess I feel similarly with the way that she disengages with the LGBT community. Like, yeah, it was hard then, but you can be part of making it better now. All right, we're going to have more chatting with Jordan and Melissa in a second. But right now, let's hear from the woman who brought Sandra's story to life. Sarah Krasnstein, welcome to What's the Story? Thank you for having me. You touched on it in the author's note, and I know you've discussed this a lot, but talk us through that first moment when you first saw Sandra Pankhurst. So uh, when I'm not writing, I work as a legal academic, and I was at a very boring bureaucratic (laughs) conference for... Are there any sexy, exciting ones? No, or? I know. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, maybe, maybe it is slightly interesting. It was of a friend, like court support services right. for disabled offenders. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people that attend these things, uh, besides academics, are public servants and also people from corrections and the police. And those stakeholders uh, from time to time contract with Sandra for her services, for her cleaning business. So being the businesswoman that she is, she took that chance and she was in the lobby uh, at a card table touting her business. And it was a break between sessions and I came out and it was just this image of the striking woman and this business that, you know, I had somehow managed to reach my mid-30s without never giving one moment's thought to. What is trauma cleaning? Mm. And I I had to know more. I didn't kind of consciously put on my writing hat. It was just this overwhelming sense of my own curiosity to find out who she was and and what she did. We follow you and Sandra as you visit multiple houses uh, that are in need of her services, of the trauma cleaning. And we meet some of those people who are in pretty desperate need of, of connection and a bit of care. Which personal home that you visited with Sandra really sticks with you and stays in your head and your soul? They're all in the book because they were absolutely earth-shattering for me. So they're all special to me in that sense. But the first job was uh, emotionally and viscerally huge for me um, because that leap from not having any experience in these environments to suddenly stepping into what seems like another world and finding it's actually just you know the flat next door or the street you know over. That was that was huge in terms of shattering any perceptions I had about what our society is like. Yeah. The um, woman who was my age at the time, 35, who had recently died of a heroin overdose, um, and other on-site jobs with Sandra would be equally disturbing and equally sad. But I think it was just this realization of how alone certain people in our society can be as I stepped into this apartment where this death had gone undiscovered for two and a half weeks. And so that that kind of change from zero to 100 was something that just, you know, had a humongous emotional impact on me. What would you say that you learned personally from writing The Trauma Cleaner? You know, I, I think it was this real living example in Sandra and her clients and my experience during those years of of research 
into this human craving for order. You know, we're not going to be able to solve all of the traumas of the past, all of the, you know, injustices of the world as it is. But whether we let them determine our behavior on a day-to-day basis, um, we might have more agency perhaps over that than we think we do. And that's where this notion of order really kicked in for me. Um, where something sits, do we, do we keep on putting the past in the present or do we, you know, view it retrospectively and, you know, approach our are present with more of an empowered outlook. That was something I got very much through the example um, of Sandra and the contrast with some of her clients who had experienced similar hardships as, as she did and yet were not in the position that she is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and also this, this the, the inevitability of um, a lack of resolution that sometimes, you know, the the past will have different differential effects on our behavior, you know, in, in the beautiful way in which Sandra worked with her clients. And yet the, you know, the sadness in her relationships with certain people in the present and, you know, the final chapter with the children, sometimes it's not going to manifest neatly. And that's OK. That's the complexity of, of human experience. Of course, the other major component of the trauma cleaner is Sandra's trauma cleaning work. Sarah Krasacine says Sandra goes into homes of people who have been broken and cleans through their pain. Uh, We go to eight different houses throughout the story, and one of them belongs to Janice. It is night inside Janice's house, and while it is true that the toilet overflowed several years ago and that both the shower and bathtub drains have been clogged with wet clothes for some time, it is not true that the house was ever fully submerged underwater but that is precisely the image conveyed by these sepia-stained walls and the strangely moist furniture and the accumulation of rubbish and random items strewn everywhere. It's heartbreaking yeah. and it's it's gross. i got to be honest, it's gross. I think uh, Genesis House is described as vaguely aquatic at yeah. one point too, which is an extraordinary phrase. How did you go going to those houses, Jordan? Um, look, I, I thought the vivid descriptions were... Amazing. Um, And I'm going to feel quite bad about this. It made me feel better about my own mess. Um, I'm I'm not a tidy person and I do have, you know, some hoarding behaviours. I've got a drawer full of, like, um, Happy Meal toys from the 90s that I've convinced are worth money. Um, You know, I I found out that my peanut butter that I've been eating is very much out of date. Um, But, hey, at at least, I don't know, there's not blood under the carpets. So, um, (laughs) sure. You do it all right. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. All right, Melissa, in, in your work, you look at the causes and the triggers that can lead to hoarding behaviour, the kind of behaviour we see in the trauma cleaner. What did you make of those situations, of those eight houses, of people who are in a pretty bad way and need Sandra's services? I thought it was really good at highlighting what happens when people don't get services early, that it just continues to pile up and pile up. And in this clip, we heard that the toilet flooded a few years ago and it hasn't been cleaned up. And what happens over Mm. time if that's not taken care of? And there's, uh, I believe there's feces on the light switch in Janice's house. Like, it's it's pretty shocking stuff. So what, what leads to this kind of hoarding behavior? And how do people manage to live in these environments for such a long period of time without getting help? We think it's about 50% genetics and 50% life experiences, and that life experiences probably has something to do with having interpersonal traumas. Interpersonal traumas. Okay, tell me more about that. So as a child, not having caregivers who look after your needs, who 
um, are there for you when you need, you know, when you're distressed and are there to calm you down and to teach you how to deal with your distress. Right. That, and then somewhere along the way, they learn that possessions help to comfort them, that possessions are there for them instead of people. And so they start to get these emotional attachments to possessions in the exact same way that someone else might have an attachment to another human being. And can they sort of be anything, not necessarily valuable items, just simply having stuff and owning stuff and having control over it? I mean, there's, there's that scene where Janice is like literally rifling through the rubbish bags, just desperate to find something, worried that she's going to lose something. There'll be something good in the bad, I believe is the phrase yeah, that, that she uses. Yeah, that is so mm. common. So with hoarding, they save objectively valuable stuff with objectively invaluable stuff. And so it's not – it's no different than the – Everybody else, almost everybody feels some sort of attachment to at least a few items. The difference is the degree of attachment and just to how many items. And so for Janice, there are thousands and thousands of objects that she's emotionally attached to and and feels like she can't part with them. And it leads her to chase after the garbage after if it's gone outside. I need to double check it. What do you think of our perhaps morbid curiosity with people who exhibit hoarding behaviours? There are TV shows dedicated to this. Mm. And there is probably something pretty problematic with us watching these shows going, oh, look at these weirdos and at least I'm not like them, perhaps, which is a totally understandable reaction. But what what is that morbid fascination we have with how much people can let things slip in their own lives? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not great. Um, So on the one hand, it's brought hoarding more out into the open. And so they talk about it in the book that they were standing on, I think it might was Janice's driveway. And they said at first glance, you wouldn't notice there was anything Mm, different. mm. It looks normal until you open the door and then you see all the trauma. Mm. And so the hoarding shows have brought that into light that now people are recognizing that hoarding actually is quite prevalent. It might be 5% of the population, which is more common than OCD. Wow. Um, And so that's been really great. But then it's also had a negative impact on people with hoarding disorders because in those shows, not everybody's compassionate. And so they've walked away with, well, if I go to get treatment, someone's just going to yell at me or force me to get rid of my objects. And so it's already hard for them to seek treatment, and now it's making it even harder. And it seems Sarah Krasenstein's mission in this, this book is to highlight the fact that these people are not different to you and I, that they could be us. The difference is when the trauma hit, when shit hit the fan for these people in their lives, they didn't have a support network to help them through that, and thus they've ended up the way they they are. Exactly. And the other thing I really liked um, that Sarah said um, was something about the homes really tell you who the people are, but the people are so much more than their homes. Yeah. Do people get better? Some people do, not as many as I would like. Mm. So the best treatment we have really only helps about 25% of people. It will help a bit more, but their homes will still be substantially cluttered and preventing them from sleeping in their bed. Mm. And so we, we really need more money devoted to how learning more about hoarding so we can improve our treatments, but also just to make sure that the funding's there for the people who do want treatment. It's such a huge problem that you need more than a therapist. You need to get the tips out there. You need to get a professional organizer like Sandra. Mm. Um, you'll need to get caseworkers, a whole bunch of people to help, and there just isn't money. People think, oh, it should be done in 10 sessions and you should be cured. Mm. And it's going to be a year of hard work. The ironic centre of the trauma cleaner is the fact that Sandra Pankhurst herself has obviously been through a lot of trauma, been through a lot of things herself, and yet she spends her time cleaning up for other people, trauma cleaning um, for other people who are obviously touched in in, in similar ways by, by bad events. Were you surprised, Melissa, 
that Sandra Pankhurst herself wasn't as defeated or overwhelmed by life as Janice or Kim or Dorothy? I think at first glance I was, but then I um, stood back and thought about it a while, and her life wasn't perfect. She used a lot of drugs and alcohol and lived her life without her two boys in it, and that's pretty devastating. Um, But then when you think about why isn't she attached to objects while some of these other people are, and I think it's potentially because her parents taught her that attachments were bad. They were were never there for her to support her as a kid. Mm. And I think that perhaps she's carried on that message with possessions. They're they're easy to get rid of, just like people. Yeah, she's almost the opposite of hoarding behavior, right? She's Mm. about getting rid of things. And obviously, in that last scene, that really powerful last scene, the description of her home now, the mm. home that she's found and made for herself, which is, which is extremely clean yeah, ordered and, and tidy and, and, and ordered, yeah. right? This idea of order. That's where she's got to. Um, and so the idea of her perhaps filling her house with lots and lots of objects would be anathema to Sandra and her, her story. Yeah. The same way when, when we started off this, that she didn't want a, a funeral. Mm. It's the same thing. Yeah. I found that, um, you know, that she needed to throw everything away and start over a number of times throughout her life. Mm. Um and even the moment, you know, and a lot of trans people have, have had this moment of, you know, when you go full time mm. and you throw away all your old clothes. And it was remarkable that moment when she was throwing away all her boy clothes and how that mirrored the work that she, she got into of, you know, that these parts of your life are not, are not needed anymore and getting rid of them. Is the overall takeaway from this story that we never know what people have got going on. <laughs> and if you don't know someone's story, yeah. chances are, you know, probably approach them with an open mind and open heart because they could have seen and been through some stuff that we could never possibly imagine. Yeah, I think that's a really good takeaway yeah. message. All right, Jordan and Melissa, we are not alone in having listened to The Trauma Cleaner. There are other people out there who have listened and they've left some thoughts on the internet, letting the world know their views. Let's hear some of those views right now. Uh, Jordan, you have one from Linny. Yes. Uh, this was a phenomenal story. Incredibly sad, but massively courageous. I absolutely love the narration as well. I've not heard anything like it. It was so original, and the narrator had a really great way of representing all of the characters. Would you agree with that? It's Rachel Tidd. I thought it was a beautiful reading. Throughout, yeah, throughout I mean, I, I found it a bit jarring when she kind of went into accents for the characters. But I thought her, she nailed Sandra's voice. Absolutely. I feel like I knew yes, Sandra's yes, voice yes, out of this. totally, totally. Yeah. I also like the reviewers, very courageous. I, I hate being called courageous and brave. Just, just put it out there. <laughs> just doing Look what I got to do. Look at you, you left the house. So brave. So brave. Uh, Melissa, you have some feedback from Emma. This book was not what I expected. I thought it would be more about behind-the-scenes forensics, but it's a story about compassion. The parts of life some of us are privileged never to experience. This is a tragic story about an abused child and their struggle to become a transgender adult. It's not for the faint-hearted. It was tough going. I don't regret reading it. An incredibly brave and honest story. I think that's a nice summation. But, yeah, if you weren't prepared for what the trauma cleaner was going in, it would be quite a shock, yeah. particularly if you were hoping for CSI. I mm-hmm. think you yeah, might be. definitely totally. a well, different I, story. Than I, I thought it was CSI and my way out to Bathurst, and then, oh, gosh, no, this is heavy. Different. Yeah. Uh, and this is from Lauren. It was okay. 
An interesting story given a trauma-filled life, but the lengthy description of hoarders was a bit tiresome. The author didn't really take a balanced view of Sandra, so it was very much a love letter, as she admits at the start. Oddly, the narrator had a cold for a good third of the book, but did the accents well. <laughs> I don't know if Lauren is a medical professional and is no. able to diagnose um, Rachel Tidd and her cold, but uh, what a there skill. You go. What yeah, a skill. What a skill. Now, it's interesting, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording, the phrase hoarders. That's actually not the best choice of words when we're talking about people who exhibit that kind of behavior, is it? No, it isn't, for a few different reasons. So, one, it's making the person just about hoarding. And as the book clarifies, mm. the person is much more than their home. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing is that with psychological disorders, none of them exist. So all it is is a whole bunch of men and women get in a room and make a decision every 10 years about what do we think we have evidence for. And it's all based on the symptoms that someone exhibits. So in hoarding, it's someone who has difficulty throwing things away because they're emotionally attached to it. And it's gotten so bad that now they can't use their home as intended. When we see those things, we then say that's hoarding disorder. But there's no cancerous tumor inside someone that we can point out and say that's the cause. Mm. And so by telling someone they're a hoarder, you're giving that too much power. Right. Yeah. It's similar similar with with trans people. A lot of people use the word transgender as a noun um, when it's when it's an adjective. Right. You know, you are a transgender person or transgender woman. Um, you're not you're not a transgender. Mm. Um, and that's and this is a similar thing about recognizing that you are a person who has this trait. You're a woman who has this trait, but it is not your defining characteristic. Uh, we'd love to know what you made of the trauma cleanup. All you have to do is head to the What's the Story Facebook group, say your piece, ask us any questions, and you'll also find some sweet behind-the-scenes stuff from the What's the Story world. Melissa Norberg, Jordan Raskopoulos, thank you so much for joining me on What's the Story. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Join me on the next episode of What's the Story in a couple of weeks' time when I'll reveal to you the next Editor's Extra that we'll be discussing on the show. Remember, if you're an Audible member, you'll get one credit each month to use on any audiobook of your choice. You'll also get our selected Editor's Extra, the bonus bestseller that we chat about here on What's the Story. If you're a newbie, just head to audible.com.au slash story to get involved and join us. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. The Trauma Cleaner and this episode of What's the Story has covered some pretty heavy stuff and we know that can be overwhelming for some people. If you or someone you know is struggling and needs someone to talk to, remember you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hey, if you enjoyed The Trauma Cleaner and you're wondering what to listen to next, maybe you'll enjoy these other titles on Audible. Tara Westover and her family grew up preparing for the end of days, but according to the government, she didn't exist. Educated is a discovery of the transformative power of education and the price one young woman had to pay for it. Or maybe you'll enjoy See What You Made Me Do. Investigative journalist Jess Hill combines forensic research with riveting storytelling and radically rethinks how to confront the national crisis of fear and abuse in our homes. You can listen to Educated and see what you made me do now on Audible.